Hello and welcome to Simply Why. I'm your host, Connor Reed. Simply Why is a podcast brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University, where we do a deep dive into the stories behind our outcomes. Our guests share the choices that changed their lives, the paths that led them to where they are, and of course, the why at the heart of it all. Our guest today is Todd Ream. Todd is the Executive Director for Faculty Research and Scholarship and Professor of Humanities at Indiana Wesleyan University. He also serves as Senior Fellow for Programming at the Lumen Research Institute. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including an upcoming publication with Jerry Pattengale titled The Anxious Middle, Planning for the Future of the Christian Colleges. Todd, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Connor. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, let's just dig in with some heavy, hard-hitting questions then. Sure. Question number one, burgers or hot dogs? Burgers. You don't know what's in a hot dog. Well, you may not know what's in a burger either, but you got a better chance. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Question number two. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. I grew up in Los Angeles, and my only attachment, unfortunately, as my family has all now since moved, is to the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, gonna have to still go with West Coast. Hey, I'm a Dodgers fan too. So, there we go. There we go. All right. And question number three reading or writing? Reading. I get to explore somebody else's ideas, where when it's writing, it's mine. And when you gotta own it, that's a whole nother level of uh, <laughs> responsibility. So, <laughs> Well, I want to start off by kind of going into your background and your career. So you focus a lot in both your writings and just articles, all that sort of stuff of the importance of education, the importance of higher education, and even further, the importance of Christian higher education. How did you fall into that since college isn't usually something that you experience when you're like five or six, like if you're if you're drawing or if you're reading or that sort of thing and get interested in the subject that way. So when did that first come about of like, wow, this is something that is really important to me, but also really important to culture as a whole? I was an undergraduate at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And I don't think I realized, in fact, I know I didn't realize at the time just how valuable an experience that was. And in some ways, also how fragile an experience that was. And when I say that, I mean, that's sort of the fabric and the intellectual architecture of a Christian, a Christian university. When I was a graduate student, though, my second year in the summer, I was looking for something to read because, of course, I was employed in a student employee job that I was giving my all to at the time. And I came across a book by a historian by the name of George Marsden, and it was called The Soul of the American University. The book had just actually been unpacked from the boxes in the bookstore, and I bought a copy, despite the length of it, read it within you know less than a week. And it was through that experience and through George's wisdom that he shares in that book that I realized that the experience that I had, again, was significant, but it was also fragile. And that if there weren't people that were committed to not only enhancing that education for students, but making certain on a daily basis that that experience was the best it possibly could be, that it could be lost. In some ways, everything else is details or detours, depending upon the day. But it all sort of comes back to that. I believe young people, people created in God's image, have a certain created potential to them. And in order to cultivate that potential to the fullest, Christian institutions of higher learning need to operate in the most faithful, and the most excellent manner possible. Looking over your CV, your website, anything like that, you are a very busy person. You have a lot going on. So how do you manage to balance all of these different roles and positions and talents that you hold? Some days are not as easy as others on that. Try to be clear about what the priorities are. And so when there are conflicts in it, you know, I know what the default answer should be. 
my wife and I are about to enter into the empty nest phase of life. So this is going to get some revision. But uh, during those seasons, you know, when things were in conflict, default always to family and not, you know, missing an event or not being present or available for a conversation that one of my two daughters, Addison or Ashley, needed to have or my wife needed to have. Those opportunities don't come back around necessarily. And they go all too fast, as I'm realizing. But yet also maximizing time on the other side for finishing those projects and staying committed to them. Easier said than done, because I get sometimes bored uh, with something in the middle of it. And there'll be like this interesting distraction, like, oh, I could write about this, or I could write about that, or I could read about this. Because as I said just a minute ago, I'd rather read than write necessarily. But staying focused on finishing those things as much as possible. The best sort of advice I ever got sort of came serendipitously from an editor that we were hosting on campus at the time. And he said, you know, I travel a lot. I got a lot of different things that are going on. So I wind up with a lot of little blocks of time in my schedule where I'm waiting for something or I'm heading to something, making sure I take advantage of that and I come prepared to be able to take advantage of that. So for example, my younger daughter is a swimmer and I spent a lot of time before she could drive at swim practice, sitting in the hallway outside a natatorium because it's too hot and humid inside for people who aren't in the pool to be in there. And I often thought that the institutions that provided me with Wi-Fi while sitting in those hallways, I should include in acknowledgement sections and books and things, because those were blocks of time, you know, where I could get a lot of work done. It was different than a meet when, you know, I wanted to be sure that I could watch what she's doing and be engaged as a parent in practice. They were doing the same thing hundreds of times over and over again. So just taking advantage of those things, those little blocks of time, those add up. Mm, definitely. So kind of going into both your upcoming book, but also a point that you've talked about a lot of planning for the future of Christian colleges. I mean, we are just at an interesting point for higher education. Many of the other previous professors that we've talked to have talked about this, but what do you kind of see as the future for Christian universities since universities on a whole have been on a somewhat downward turn in attendance for the upcoming generation? So how do you see that impacting and affecting Christian colleges? There's certainly a variety of factors that are contributing to it. And I think one of the things to remember is for those of us who are first and foremost concerned about church-related higher education, Christian higher education, is that it's not just affecting our institutions, that it's an industry-wide challenge. So sometimes we can be invested, and I think a little too much hand-wringing if we're only talking to people within our sphere, thinking that it's only happening to us. Again, it's an industry-wide challenge. And you mentioned enrollment, for example. There are going to be enrollment trends that we're going to need to be prepared to contend with here uh, in the coming years. But I think, actually, out of this sense of industry-wide, I'm going to call it confusion of purpose, the institutions that are clear about who they are, what their purpose is, and are able to articulate that well and partner with entities that can help them with that, will be positioned well for the next generation, generation and a half at least. I try not to get into future predictions too much. So, you know, that's about as far as I'm willing to go there. And I say that because it's hard to figure out what an institution of higher education, its purpose is, what, what the good of it is right now. And so schools that are able to do that in a compelling way, I think will be extremely attractive to a society that is eager and, and hungry for that. Kind of going into a different aspect of that of faculty, because I know faculty play a major role in bringing students in, like whenever you're on those visit days and maybe you meet with a professor who is just so passionate about their 
topics and just really pour that into the potential student that that can sometimes bring students in. So part of what you do also is you're the executive director for faculty research and scholarship. So how do you see the growth of faculty within their role outside of teaching as being important to their role of teaching? For example, research and scholarship, the tangible result of that, that's all good and important. You know, whether it's a book or it's a concert performance or an art installation, an article, whatever it may be, that's good and that's important and it's helpful. But it's really about how we model a habit of mind in community with our students, how they sort of get a sense just by being around us and being engaged in conversations with us. There are questions that we wake up with every day that we are eager to pursue and for which to find answers. I think that's the most important part of it. And I think the best or most significant form of sort of scholarship or exploration comes when students are actually doing that side by side. Study after study shows that's actually the most impactful form of teaching. So, for example, Warren Rogers, my colleague and friend in physics, took a group of students to Los Alamos this summer and did research there. The impact that that kind of experience has by comparison to sitting in a lecture hall, which is important and good, but, you know, what we know long-term is that that is most important. And long after maybe they forget the details of the question that they might have been pursuing in a place like Los Alamos, it's the habit of mind, the attunement that they walked away with, that they take on with them for the rest of their lives, whether they practice in physics or marketing or whatever, that habit is valuable. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do. And so cultivating that amongst faculty in ways that's palpable and can translate to students is the key. And I know that that could potentially seem daunting to professors because it's such a busy role because not only are you teaching, you're also writing courses, you're grading papers, you're doing all of these other things on top of it. So maybe the other load of I'm going to do my own research and dedicate time just to that can sometimes seem daunting as well. So what advice would you give to professors of like maybe trying to balance that out? I mean, like you were saying, integrate that into the class. Absolutely. That's that's the key, I think, is there are going to be certain points when it's not going to be possible, depending upon what the questions are, you know, that really energize a faculty member. But uh, there are ways and there are more ways, I think, often that are possible that go unexplored uh, than get explored in terms of how we can create overlap and integration with the work that we do in different domains. You know, so, for example, you know, if I serve on an editorial board for a particular journal, and I perform that kind of service, and I'm doing research on these kinds of questions, and I'm teaching these classes, thinking intentionally about the ways that those can intersect and those can mutually benefit from each other, you know, I think is critical. I think also, you know, part of the challenge is, you know, most of us come out of terminal degree programs of various sorts, where we come up with this original question, and it's very large, and it's very grandiose, and it can be relatively obscure, too. But taking time to think about when we find ourselves investing and locating ourselves in a particular community, what are the questions that that community is grappling with, offers in terms of resources that I can invest in? Some of us, you know, that might not be clear or it's evident. In others, it's quite present. So another colleague, faculty colleague and friend that I would, I would highlight here is Henrik Soderstrom who is invested in ways that art and visual art can be transformative to communities. And he's done an admirable job, I think, of expressing that 
in Marion. Now, my guess is Henrik probably hadn't been to Marion before he started considering the position, or if he had, it was only briefly. And so it took some thought and some some reallocation of where he thought his career might go. I think it's paid considerable dividends, first and foremost, for the community, but I think he also finds it very personally enriching and rewarding. Yes, we had Henrik on a previous episode, and it was just great to hear his passion for art and for just everything. I mean, he's just so wise and knowledgeable on all of it. It's absolutely astounding. So I highly recommend our listeners to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. I would encourage instead of having me on, have him on for a part two, actually. So uh, (laughs) uh, whatever I can articulate, he can see, he can say with much greater clarity and passion than I can. So but yeah, that kind of work, work that he probably didn't envision before he came here, but he thought deeply about where he was, skills that he had, what points of intersection there were, and he invested in it. The dividends are huge for the community, but also for him. Definitely. Well, I kind of want to dig into your writing as well, because you write on a wide variety of topics from theologians to university life, all that sort of stuff. So how do you pick which topic you're going to write on? And if you decide like, oh, this is going to be an article, or maybe this will be a couple chapters in a book or a whole book itself. Yeah, I think sometimes it starts with an article because I may not know whether or not I have a longstanding passion for something or not. And then it can grow from there. A lot of it has to do with the accessibility of the resources to complete that project. You know, I was fortunate that our family lived here. The community blessed our family. This has been a a great place for us to live and invest. But also it's close to the archives and papers for someone who I've been interested in since I was a graduate student. And that's former Notre Dame president, Theodore Hesburgh. After he passed away in 2015, I got interested in, I'd done a couple of pieces on him before and had the pleasure of meeting him. In fact, my older daughter, Addison, when she studied the civil rights movement, and he was on the civil rights commission, he allowed her to come up to Notre Dame and interview him about his work and things like that. But having access to his papers being only 90 minutes away has been huge. And so I started, the original thought was I would write a biography, you know, of him. But going back to your question, he lived for 97 years and he lived a very active life. The biography is going to be long. Well, I wasn't ready to write that. So I needed to do shorter things to prepare, not only test that level of interest and whether or not I could see something like that through to the end, but also prepare myself to do that work. And so I've done some shorter book projects, two of them for wider audiences on him but also two of them for scholars. But that was the way to sort of ramp up now for the biography project. So I think there's there's a variety you know, of ways. You got you to know whether or not it's going to stand the test of time in terms of your interest, but you got to know whether or not you have, you're going to have sustained access to the resources given where you are. So going a bit deeper into your process of writing, is the sort of thing where you're like, all right, I'm going to write two pages a day or a page a day? Or do you just set aside a block of time where you're like, all right, I got my coffee, maybe got some tea, some snacks, and I'm just going to blow through as much as I can? Or what is your process for that? I wish I could give people a formula. Let me say, I wish I had a formula and then I wish I could give it to them. You know, and I think, you know, people who write are always sort of looking for tips and sort of strategies. Again, go back to what I was saying earlier that I got from the editor who visited campus. When you have time, do the work. When you find yourself there, you know, do the work. I try to limit distractions, even though I've written, for example, on faculty usage, public intellectuals and social media. I don't actually use social media myself. I thought I was going to have to start using it in order to be able to communicate with my children once they left home. But we found other means. 
I don't watch a lot of television. I don't listen to, with all due respect, a lot of podcasts, et cetera. I mean, I try to be very specific about, you know, what I utilize and then try to maximize that time. Part of it is for people to know themselves well. I've got some friends, given the timestamp on the emails I get from them, that are pretty much nocturnal, I'm pretty convinced. Some of them I don't think actually sleep, maybe. I know that pretty much anything I write after about three o'clock in the afternoon is pretty much going to be worthless. Anything that I may even think about saying after about 9.30 or 10 o'clock is going to be incoherent. Knowing that about yourself. But for me, you know, if I get up between five and six in the morning, I know that it's much clearer. uh, It's much more articulate. And I can move actually much faster. I can do work twice to three times as fast in the morning as I can in the afternoon. So just knowing yourself, knowing what those rhythms are. And that's part of what makes, you know, working in a university setting interesting is, again, you got those nocturnal colleagues and they're in the studio sketching things out or painting, sculpting at 2.30 in the morning. As long as that works for their family, that's great. That's when they work, running experiments at that time of the day. Others are up at 6 a.m. Others are doing it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it's just you got to know yourself and, and maximize that. That is some great advice and I think a great way to wrap up this episode. Todd, thank you so much for being on. Is there anywhere where people can go to find your books and articles and other writings? Yeah, I think the website, you know, my bio site on the uh, Indiana Wesleyan webpage. And then I also have uh, an author site where I try to log these sorts of materials. Either one of those, if they just Google Todd Ream, they'll find those. I will say that there's an orthopedic surgeon in Kalamazoo, Michigan, whose name is also Todd Ream. I don't have that skill set and I'm not him. So if they find themselves wandering into his office, you know, looking for these things virtually, that's a different Todd Ream. So if you're not in small town, Indiana, you're in the wrong place. Correct. Exactly. Yes. And if you're, if you find yourself, you know, only having resources for orthopedic surgery, which could be helpful, you know, that's a different person with a different skill set. So wonderful. All right. We'll make sure to put links to those in our show notes. Todd, thanks again for being on today. Thank you. Simply Why is brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University. IWU is a nationally renowned, Christ-centered academic community dedicated to providing leading, innovative education opportunities for students of all ages, backgrounds, and life stages. To learn more about IWU's online, on-site, and hybrid programs, visit indwes.edu. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.